I left Microsoft July of 2020. My wife's little jokes that like you haven't actually left Microsoft because you produce so many videos on Microsoft. It's like, in a sense, you're still working there. At some point, are they going to acquire you, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news. Before we get to this week's guest and our topic, Windows 11 and the new Surface devices for Microsoft, a quick reminder, don't forget the GeekWire Summit is coming up on October 4th and 5th. We've got a great lineup, including new Amazon CEO Andy Jassy and international pop star Sierra. You don't want to miss it. You can get tickets for either online or in-person attendance at geekwire.com summit. With that, I am pleased to welcome our guest this week. Kevin Stratvert is a former Microsoft program manager who left the company to focus full-time on his work as a YouTube creator, producing how-to videos about software and services from Microsoft and others. Kevin, it's great to have you on. Yeah, thank you uh, so much for inviting me, Todd. It's great to be here. You've got an inspiring story. I've been inspired by it personally just to see what kind of audience you've built up and how you've leveraged your expertise and some of your experience inside Microsoft to go independent and become a YouTube creator. And we want to talk about that later on in the show. But first, it was a pretty big week for Microsoft on its Surface devices. We'll talk about that as well. But there is a big launch coming up that you've paid a lot of attention to, and that is Windows 11. A lot of people in our audience are familiar with Windows 11. Some are not. But the question I always get on Windows 11 is, should I really care? Should I upgrade? And what really matters about Windows 11 anyway? I'm curious, how do you answer that question when you get it from people? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the questions I hear a lot is, hey, you know, Windows 10 has been around for a while and Microsoft actually came out and said, this will be the last version of Windows. And, and so the, the question comes up all the time, like, hey, why is there Windows 11? Why did this announcement happen? Um, and, and I think anytime Microsoft comes out with some new product, especially if they give it a new number like Windows 11, uh, it generates a certain excitement level. It I think it also helps communicate to customers that there's something new and, and there's some kind of big innovation that's happened. And when I look at Windows 11, there have been tons and tons of changes. And I, I think those changes deserve having a new number attached to it. Um, just as an example, you know, you have the start menu in the center now, widgets are coming back. The, the start menu itself has been completely revamped. Performance is a lot better. Um, so I, I think it justifies having a new release number attached to it. And uh, I'm, I'm personally very excited about it. To me, it, it seems like a lot of it is cosmetic. It's the user interface. Although people who are in design and UI and UX would scold me, I think, for downplaying that because I guess the old Steve Jobs line, design is how it works. I mean, appearance matters. It really impacts how people use a product. What are the biggest changes in that UI? You mentioned the sort of centering of the start menu. What what are the biggest changes though that you've experienced in in your usage of Windows 11? Yeah, so one of the things I've noticed is, uh, so within Microsoft, there's been a big push to have their Fluent UX. 
And and so especially you look at a lot of the office applications and uh, just the way the buttons are desi- uh, designed, the rounded edges. So that that same kind of design language now extends over to Windows. Uh, and I, I think kind of uh, one of the big motivations for doing that is you have more cohesion across all of your different products. I think also when I when I look at design too, a lot of things have been cleaned up. Uh, so when you look at older versions of Windows um, and you look at the, say the settings menu, you had you know kind of the more modern settings look, but then you had all, you had all these legacy screens. And I I think with Windows 11, a lot of that's been consolidated, so it all sits under this uh, new look and feel. Um, so I think a lot of it is just aligning with this new design language, cleaning things up. But overall, I think it just has a more a cleaner and, and just a more modern uh, kind of look to it. Yeah, you mentioned the widgets as well. This is something that I think they introduced in an older version of Windows previously. And, and it reminds me a little bit of what smartphone operating systems, Android and iOS, have done, where the idea is just to have a, a quick glance to see the critical information from the apps that you run or the services that you care about in terms of news or updates. Is that basically what it is? Am I understanding it correctly? Uh, yeah, with Windows 11 now, uh, there's a new button on the taskbar. And when you click on that, uh, it opens up, I'd say, relevant information at your fingertips. So you have things like the weather, you might have traffic information, maybe you have memories on OneDrive that appear. And so it's all just kind of one click away on your taskbar. Um, it also includes uh, news headlines. Um, and, and I think the motivation there is to just provide relevant information to you directly on the OS without uh, kind of requiring you to go off to the web to find that type of information. Uh, and I, I think really it kind of mimics what you see on the start or on a, on say a phone, like say the iPhone or an Android phone where you kind of swipe over and you get those cards with relevant information. Um, so in a sense, it's, it's almost kind of catching up with what we see in the mobile space. Uh, but I think it's also saying, Hey, you know, people spend a lot of time on their PCs how can we surface relevant information without requiring people to take as many clicks as, say, opening a browser, heading off to a website? Let's just present it you know, directly as part of the OS. Another thing that stood out to me from watching one of your videos actually was something that I think I'll use quite a bit, and that was the ability to run multiple desktops. And of course, this is not a new feature, but it seems like they've really upgraded this capability, the idea that you might have a desktop for work on the same computer that you have a different desktop that you can easily switch to for home. And kind of that work-life balance is obviously very key these days for people who may be sitting at the same desk uh, morning, noon, and night through all of their different scenarios in life. What kinds of things has Microsoft done in terms of that multiple desktop scenario uh, that you, you like in Windows 11? Yeah, the uh, the multiple desktops have been around for a while, although you could argue in the past it was just much more difficult to discover. And I think there were also some kind of key features missing that limited the adoption of the feature. Uh, and, and I think now, especially you know, with the pandemic, more people working from home, you have more and more people using their PCs for multiple purposes. So you know, you have you do your work and then at the end of the workday, maybe you switch over to personal tasks. Um, and so I think that's where you know, Microsoft looked at that and said, hey, uh, being able to support these multiple desktops is now more important than ever. Um, so some of the some of the changes that have happened is, you know, you can set a different background. So that way, you know, hey, this is my work environment. And then say in your personal environment, you can have a different background. Um, so it helps differentiate the two of them. I think there are still some things that are missing. And uh, I'm not sure how much of this will come, 
you know, shortly after Windows 11 releases, uh, for example, being able to have a say different apps on your taskbar. So, you know, for work, you use one set of apps in your personal life, you use a different set of apps. Can you customize those apps across the desktops? And at least that's not there yet. But I, I think at least what, I, what I've seen so far is there's been quite a bit of improvement in the multiple desktop experience. The other thing that I've really wrestled with at times on Windows is my overall effort, on Windows 10 at least, to integrate my smartphone with my computer. Microsoft has the Your Phone app, but I've always struggled with it in part because you can only connect one phone to one computer, essentially. And I end up switching back and forth between multiple computers, and I realize that may not be a common problem for folks out there. But I end up going, frankly, with the Google services. I have shifted almost entirely to Google Photos because it's easy to connect those to Android and access them in my browser. I also end up using Google Messages on my phone for the primary purpose of being able to access the Google Messages web app on my, on my browser. And um, I, I know that Microsoft has made some improvements in the Your Phone app in Windows 11. Ha have you dug into that at all, Kevin? Yeah, so I, uh, I I guess I'm kind of a step behind you, Todd, but I, I actually have an iPhone. And uh, uh, so with the Your Phone app, the support for Android, I think, is fairly good. And at least everyone I've spoken to who has an Android device, uh, the integration is actually pretty good. Like you could send your text messages, you can make and receive phone calls. Um, I believe you could even screencast over to your PC and see what's on your phone screen. Uh, but when it comes to iPhone, the uh, the support's pretty much lacking. Like I, I think I think you could send links between your phone and your PC, and and that's the extent of the support. I, I don't think all of it's on Microsoft either. I think the desire there is to provide more support. I think you you know you have Apple on the other hand who you know kind of wants to make using an iPhone the best in their ecosystem. Um, so there's a little bit of that kind of you know you you, you kind of have a wall around your ecosystem. But at least everything I've heard is Android support's pretty good. I, I, I haven't actually personally experienced it to know about the one phone limitation. Uh, but at least from what I've heard, Android support's decent. iPhone's pretty much non-existent, in which case you need to fall back to other apps. Uh, like I, I know Dell has an app called Mobile Connect that provides the ability to text and make phone calls and see your iPhone screen. But it's, uh, I guess, unfortunate you have to fall back to uh, other third-party apps. That's really interesting because... I was an iPhone user and a Mac user back in the day. And what I ended up doing was I switched to Windows for Mac or back to Windows for Mac. And then I had my iPhone and I was like, I loved the integration between iOS and Mac OS and the ability to essentially have the same backend for your messages app on both your computer and your phone. And frankly, that's what sort of sent me down that path of trying to figure out a way to replicate that on Windows. And when Satya Nadella got up on stage a few years ago at the Samsung announcement and announced the specialization in part of the Your Phone app for Samsung devices, that's when I switched to an Android. And it just, there were just little quirks along the way. And, and it spoke to me to the ways that third-party web apps in many ways can still be superior to these purpose-built client applications that companies like Microsoft might make. That's really getting into the weeds of technical nuance and software development, but that's really what, what my journey has been like. Mm -hmm. No, it makes sense. Yeah, it's been uh, de definitely uh, with an iPhone, it's, it's been a pain point for me. <laughs> I am curious in Windows 11, there's been some discussion about the integration of the Teams chat into Windows 11. 
What can people expect in terms of that and the team's experience in Windows 11 from what you've seen? Yeah, on on Windows 11, uh, there's now uh, a very prominent entry point to Microsoft Teams. Uh, so if you ju- if you just look at your taskbar, uh, you see a chat icon with kind of a video icon inside of that, uh, and clicking on that opens up your chatting experience. I think it really delivers what you would expect from your kind of typical you know video chatting application. So if you use say like FaceTime or WhatsApp or any one of those applications, uh, you'll get a similar experience. You have all of your contacts. You could chat with them. You could kick off uh, video calls. You can also share your screen with others. Um, so I, I think kind of what's happened is, uh, like if you if you look back many many years ago, Microsoft acquired Skype, uh, and at, at least at one time, Skype was the de facto communication app. Um, but then I think over time it lost some of its luster. You had all these you know other upstart apps uh, gain more and more traction, get larger user bases, and and so I think not as many people think about Skype anymore. While kind of at the same time, Microsoft's had a massive amount of success in the enterprise space with Teams. You know, you have massive adoption, you know, tens and tens of millions of users, uh, you know, meeting on Teams uh, and carrying on business, uh, running classes. Um, And so I think Microsoft is trying to take some of that success in the enterprise space and trying to say, hey, if we integrate Teams directly into Windows, can we kind of mimic some of that success in the consumer space? Um, So I I think that's the play here. I've used a I've used Teams a little bit. It's uh, when you use Teams, it's the consumer experience, and uh, at least you can't uh, interact very easily with your, I guess, work or school account through Teams on Windows. But it, it seems like it's a step in the right direction, and like it seems to deliver what you'd expect from your kind of chat or video app. What was the app that Skype chat replaced? Was it MSN Messenger? I I still have hard feelings about that I, because. That actually changed the way that I interacted with tons and tons of people, many of them inside Microsoft. And of course, I cover the company. And I used to love that because I could see the little, I guess it was a green bubble when they would be online. And for some reason, nobody inside the company really adopted Skype in the same way that they did MSN Messenger. So Teams, though, it's it's limited to people in your domain still on that chat, I would I would imagine. Yeah, it's been it's been a complicated journey. Like I know there was Messenger, and then I think there was Link at some point, and then you had Skype for business, and, and so it's gone through a number of iterations. Um, I, I think the bet is like, hey, like we have Teams, it's working in the kind of work and school environments. Can can we kind of build that success as well in consumer? Um, I have, we'll have to see. I, I mean, definitely being integrated into Windows gives you <laughs> gives you a, a very solid entry point, but we'll have to see what that does. Lastly, on Windows 11 here. I've been following the whole discussion and I've actually gotten into a little bit of my own frustration trying to get Microsoft to explain this to me clearly about the hardware requirements and who will be eligible for an upgrade to Windows 11. And we should mention it's going to be a free upgrade starting on October 5th and they're going to do it through automatic updates. I actually have not been able to get a clear answer and maybe this has been answered since I was making my attempts, but I have not been able to get a clear answer on whether I will be able to do a manual upgrade. I or anyone else will be able to do a manual upgrade to essentially jump the line if I don't get an automatic update to Windows 11 as soon as I would want. Have you been tracking that at all, Kevin? So I, I don't know specifically what that's going to look like. I, I do know from my time working at Microsoft, any anytime there's a rollout, uh, you know, you want to have a gradual rollout. Um, especially like you, you look at Windows 11, you have a lot of services integrated, like, you know, you have the widgets and you have services powering those. You have the new start menu with recommendations and those are services powering those. 
Uh, and so I think you want you want this gradual rollout where you know you get a few people on, you know you make sure the services are able to handle the load, you make sure you know there are no crashes, no issues. Um, so totally get the um, you know the motivation to have this gradual rollout. In terms of kind of skipping the line or jumping ahead and being able to get the upgrade, I mean, I think undoubtedly what will happen is most people will just kind of get sucked into the upgrade whenever it happens. And so I think if you're if you definitely want to upgrade earlier, I think there'll be avenues to do that. Like I know one, like with the uh, the Windows Insider program, you could you know download the ISOs or you could opt into the program and you could already start using Windows 11. Um, so that that's kind of one avenue where if you want to get it now, and I think on the release date, it'll simply push you to the to the release build. Um, so there are ways you could kind of accelerate how quickly you get it. But I think for just you know the general public who you know don't dig into, hey, how do I get this sooner? I think it'll be a gradual rollout over time, just making sure the services are all able to kind of handle the increased load. This is a question that I know my mom's going to ask Kevin and perhaps my dad. Is it? something that's going to completely change their worlds? In other words, would they want to avoid it if they were accustomed to Windows 10? And perhaps folks who are not on the bleeding edge of technology, just to put it nicely, I mean, is this something that's going to be disorienting for some users out there, the switch to Windows 11? At least for me personally, when I when I first adopted Windows 11, uh, there there are a few new things to get used to. You know, the start menu is gone from the left side to the center, um, I, th- I think Microsoft's also aware that some of these changes may be somewhat disruptive. So there are also avenues to kind of move that back to the left side if you want it. Um, at least for me, I, I think it's pretty similar to what Windows 10 was. But at the same time, you know, changes always change. I think a, a lot of the kind of features that some of the features that I like the most, right? Like the, the performance is a lot better. I like the recommendations in the start menu. Um, so I, I think you're getting you're getting a lot of enhancements that'll make using your computer even better. Um, and you do have to deal with a little bit of change, a few things moving a little bit to take advantage of those. But at least for me personally, I thought the benefits outweighed, you know, whatever the kind of cost of switching was. And then finally here, the hardware requirements have been a subject of a lot of controversy. And what I've been able to glean is that the conspiracy theory is that Microsoft is inflating the minimum system requirements in some way in terms of the chips in particular, to artificially boost the PC market. That's sort of what the cynics would say, um, and perhaps justifiably so. What's your read on all of that, Kevin? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I When Windows 11 was first announced, I, I did a video on it. And then I think simultaneously, you know, you have all this excitement of, oh, wow, like a new OS is coming out. There, there are all these fantastic new features. And then kind of behind the scenes, you also had the system requirements come out. And I, I think people started reading those and they're like, oh, wow, like these are, this is, this is a much bigger, um, I'd say, uh, kind of increase in what's required compared to, you know, the jump from say Windows 8 to Windows 10. And, and so I, I think a lot of people were excited. And then that turned to disappointment when they looked and saw, hey, my PC won't be able to run this. And so it's very easy to say then, well, you know, they're just trying to get me to buy a new PC. And in some of my videos that I did on Windows 11, you know, I got a lot of comments, a lot of people posted in the comments just saying like, oh, you know, th- this is going to cause all this e-waste. It's just a move to get me to buy a new PC. And, and so I think there was just a lot of anger and kind of disappointment out there. Um, when I dug into the announcement to say, hey, you know, what's happening here? Why are the, there um, these higher system requirements? You also, at the same time, you look at a lot of the news recently and you have, you know, increasing cyber attacks, you have increasing security incidents. 
companies, you know, you have companies spending millions and millions of dollars to unlock their data. Uh, you have people's accounts getting hacked. And uh, usually when you read those stories, the the user happened to be running a Windows PC. And and so you have all these increasing security issues. And I, I think a lot of these, and, and most of the hardware requirements, like everything bumped up a little bit, but I think the main kind of pain relates to the processor and then also the, the TPM uh, being enabled. And, and so I, th- I think by making this shift, um, it's going to make kind of computing a lot more secure. Uh, but at the same time, you have a lot of disappointed people out there whose computers don't meet those requirements. I, I think ultimately, you know, someone was or some team was on point at Microsoft that had to kind of make that call on what are the hardware requirements uh, that'll ensure this kind of safer computing environment. And uh, I, I mean, I, I think they did that with the realization that, hey, a lot of PCs aren't going to meet these hardware re- hardware requirements. I think it's especially painful for people who just recently bought a computer that that fell in that group of not being supported. Uh, but once again, I, I think uh, it, you know you had to make that call between security and then you know how many computers you support. And I mean, I, I know how diligent Microsoft is when they make these decisions. So I, I think they kind of looked at it and, and thought this was kind of the best call. Um, I, I think they have kind of stepped back a little bit now, saying, "Hey, if you install the ISO, you can still ins- install it on an unsupported PC." There have also been some concessions like, hey, you know, Windows 10 is going to continue working for many more years. And by the time that kind of cutoff happens, well, at that point, your PC will probably be, you know, like eight or nine years old. And at that point, you'd probably upgrade anyway. So I, I, I think kind of given the, the data they had and the analysis they did, this, this was kind of determined to be, you know, the appropriate level of hardware requirements. I, like, I, I don't think there's ever, you know, some conspiracy saying, hey, we're going to, you know, drive up our revenue by getting people to buy new PCs. I, I think this was just kind of the trade-off decision that they made. That makes sense. I think sometimes people give companies credit for being too Machiavellian. In other words, they're just not, they don't have it together enough to be that Machiavellian. I should mention TPM. This would be a perfect geek trivia question. I had to look it up. Trusted platform module. So that's like the special security chip in some of these newer computers. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like at the same time, if you know, if you kept your hardware requirements lower, you'd probably have a lot of people complain and say, hey, you know, my Apple is a lot more secure than PCs. And, and so like, like at, at a certain point, you can't win. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Well, that's great. And I will link from our show notes on this podcast to several of your Windows 11 videos. And in case this isn't clear yet, folks out there, if you're not yet subscribed to Kevin Stratford's YouTube channel, if these are topics that interest you, I highly recommend it. I learn a ton from Kevin and his work, not only on Windows, but he gets into other types of services too. And like little cool Excel hacks. If you talk to folks around the office, they will tell you that I love a good alternative use for Excel. So Kevin's (laughs) channel on YouTube is great to follow. Kevin doesn't delve into hardware as much on his channel, but I do want to talk about the new Surface devices that Microsoft announced this week, and we'll do that after this break. You're listening to GeekWire. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. (laughs) 
Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. We are talking about some of the latest news and the upcoming news from Microsoft. Our guest is Kevin Stratvert. He is a former Microsoft program manager who is now a full-time YouTube creator. Kevin, this past week, Microsoft came out with about eight new and updated Surface devices. I have sort of the ones that stood out to me that I want to talk about, but I know you looked at the announcements too. I'm curious, were there any devices or features or other aspects of the the new Surface devices that stood out to you from what you pay attention to? Yeah, the uh, the one that stood out to me the most was the the announcement on the uh, the Surface Laptop Studio, and uh, it, at least from first glance, like the the thing just looks like a powerhouse machine. <laughs> like I I it'd be fun to get my hands on that to start uh, just uh, you know doing some video editing and that sort of thing with it. And that's essentially what Microsoft is positioning this device for. For folks who did not see this announcement, it's essentially a laptop version of the Surface Studio desktop computer, which is another device I would love to use at some point. The Studio line essentially has this, on the desktop, this display that can kind of move down almost like an architect's drafting table and allow you to write with a digital pen using it. And this new Surface Laptop Studio is essentially the laptop incarnation of that. And it has three different modes it looks like a laptop, and then it's got this presentation mode, which they call stage mode, where it, the laptop screen kind of creates a tent over the keyboard keys. And then it goes almost all the way horizontal, but has just enough of a tilt to be sort of slanted towards you. And it kind of, again, replicates that architect's desk where you can sit there and, and scribble on it. And as you said, Kevin, this is not a wimpy machine. I mean, you're talking about a very large amount of memory, advanced processor, and also not cheap. Uh, it starts at $1,600 and goes up in the highest configurations to more than $3,000. This thing is a professional machine. Yeah. And I, I think uh, what, what impressed me the most is uh, just how much power you get out of the, uh, the Surface Laptop Studio, like just from the processor I think it includes the latest uh, RTX uh, 3050 graphics card. Uh, the display refresh rates 120 hertz, and you know the sound's supposed to be really good. You could you know present it in all these different orientations. Uh, I mean, it's a you know a powerhouse productivity computer. It could be a gaming computer. I mean, it it handles all of the different workloads you could throw at it. Uh, but it, yeah, it's just really really solid machine. But I, I think, like you said, it also comes with a pretty steep price. It is. This is certainly a niche <laughs> that they're hitting here with this device. And they also announced a number of upgrades on their Surface 2-in-1 tablet devices, the Surface Pro, um, the Surface Go, and others. The other announcement that stood out to me was the new Surface Duo 2. I attempted to use the Surface Duo, the original. I bought it on my own. This was not like a review unit, and I ended up returning it. Don't tell Panos Panay, the Microsoft <laughs> who runs this part of the business. Uh, it just—it was not something that I could justify keeping and spending money for. The combination of Microsoft hardware and the Android operating system just really didn't seem to work for me. Um, I will say that the new one looks cool. It has a notification bar on the exterior hinge, which is pretty interesting. And I should mention for folks who haven't followed the duo, it is essentially a 
dual screen handheld device with a hinge in the middle. So it's not like some of these Samsung devices where the screen itself bends. Uh, it's more like a clamshell device with two screens on it. You can have experiences that span the two screens, but it, it still feels to me like technology in search of a, a problem to solve. Do you have any thoughts on the Surface Duo, Kevin? Yeah, at least uh, when I was, uh, before I left Microsoft, I, I was working on another similar device called the Neo, uh, which was a, uh, which was supposed to be a laptop with kind of the dual screens, I guess, similar to the, to the Duo concept. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, Samsung is experimenting with this. They're trying to see if they could find something that works. Uh, I, I think with this, these types of products, it's, it's very innovative. Um, but I, I think like some of the scenarios that I've heard where, you know, you could have your email open with your calendar side by side. Like some of them seem like, you know, they could be somewhat compelling or, you know, like I've seen images of like, you know, you're playing a game and you could have the controls on one screen and then you could have the gameplay on the other screen. So there, there might be some scenarios where having two screens is useful. I think especially like you look at cell phones today and, and, and they've gotten fairly large with the display, but, you know, you can only go so big before, you know, it just doesn't fit in your pocket anymore. Um, and so this, the concept here is, you know, you could, you could fold it over and so you get, you get even more screen real estate, but yet it's still somewhat compact where you could carry it around with you. It, it seems intriguing and, and interesting. I, I think the problem is like to, to really nail these, you know, new products, it, it's going to take some generations or some time to really get it right. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's, uh, like even, you know, if you're designing apps for it, like how do you truly take advantage of two screens and, you know, you know, what uses one screen versus what uses the others. And I, I think it's just going to take a lot of experimentation, a lot of tweaking, a lot of listening to customers. Uh, and, and perhaps over time, it'll get better and better where, you know, you, you look at a Todd and you say, wow, this is really compelling, but I, I think it's a journey to get there. Um, it sounds like the first one you returned it because it didn't quite, you know, meet your needs. Uh, I think the second one is probably, I'm, I'm sure if you used it, you'd find that it's better than the first one, uh, but it might take a few more before, you know, people look at it and say, wow, this is, this is a device that I could see myself using. And then it's the classic chicken and egg problem because the app developers to develop those unique experiences for the two screens want a large user base. To get the large user base though, they first need some great apps. Now, there are some interesting apps on here. I, for example, really liked the Amazon Kindle implementation that was purpose-built for the original Surface Duo and I assume is just as good or better on the Surface Duo 2, that whole notion of essentially having both pages of the book open on either side. And to your point, Kevin, too, I, I was trying to learn Spanish on Duolingo and it was perfect because I could run the app on one screen and take notes on the other. So there certainly are scenarios and perhaps even educational scenarios like that where it could make sense. And to your larger point, there's the old Microsoft cliche of wait for version three. <laughs> so maybe the real news here isn't the new device, but the fact that there is a new device at all, Microsoft is still at it with the duo. Oh yeah. No, I was going to say to your, to your point too, about like the, the chicken and egg problem, like it's, it's absolutely a problem. Cause when you, you know, if you're an app developer, you look at the user base of the, the surface duo and you know, it's, it's pretty minuscule at this point. So you, it's hard to justify building, you know, a purpose built uh, solution for that device. Uh, but I, I think this is where, you know, Microsoft says, hey, we're making this device, we believe in it. And so the app teams will invest in building, you know, a great Outlook experience or a great Word experience or a great Teams experience. Uh, and I, I think like you you want those, um, I guess, the homegrown or the the Microsoft apps to be kind of first rate on this dual screen device. And, and hopefully that builds a following. Uh, and if you could achieve that, then other app developers are like, okay, this, you know, I, I, I see what Microsoft did here. Let me follow and build an app there too. 
you mentioned it briefly, but the Neo device, that would have been all Windows, and they've put that on ice, and I think it's basically gone. Um, but see, that to me was actually more interesting, and I realize they have to do Android to uh, run these kinds of smaller devices, but I really would have been fascinated to see a large dual screen Windows device like Neo. Yeah, no, same, same here. And I, I know the idea, like even before Neo, I, I know the idea was kicked around a few times and then kind of Neo came about. I like, I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming years we'll, we'll see something like that again. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens there. By the way, something we did not mention in the discussion of Windows 11, eventually you'll be able to run Android apps on Windows 11 natively, not just like through the Your Phone app for Android phones connecting to Windows, but natively running them on Windows. And that was enabled or will be enabled in part through the Amazon App Store, which is a strange partnership between those two. So that's still to come. Yeah. And I, I think at least right now, um, I, I guess the 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 solution in the interim until that becomes available, you have emulators where you could run Android apps. Uh, but the, you know, the one thing I think is fascinating about that is you have uh, you have a whole bunch of apps that only have an Android experience and they don't have a corresponding web experience. Like just one example, like at home, um, I use the the Wise doorbell. And for whatever reason, they only have a mobile app that works on Android or iPhone. And so you can't get it on your PC. And so I think this is where it's it's going to be really interesting where you can start running some of these apps on your PC that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. Uh, I, I think that's a, that's a big game changer. Um, and then even even just for, you know, you have some mobile PC games that only work on, you know, they only have mobile apps and now you can run it on your PC as well. It's interesting that you mentioned Wise. We were just talking about them uh, on our Slack channel this week internally. W-Y-Z-E, they're a Seattle company and they were started by former Amazon folks and they make pretty inexpensive smart home devices and they come out with like it feels like sometimes a product a week <laughs> they're just they're <laughs> prolific do you use their products pretty heavily i do yeah i have a i have a doorbell uh and then i also have some of their light bulbs and and the thing that really impresses me about them is uh, how they're able to keep the cost so low on their devices like when i was in the market for uh, one of these doorbells for my house the video doorbells um, you look on the market and it's like you know 100 150 dollars or you know here's one for 200 and then you look at wise and it's like oh here it is for you know like 35 or 40 dollars it's just they they managed to get the kind of the cost so much lower um that it's just truly affordable for the for for this kind of smart connected technology yeah and you find the quality is as good as what you might get from other manufacturers like amazon or ring yeah, at least I, I and I, I think the reason they have such a big following, like you, you talk to people and you just have fans. And I, I think it's because not only is the kind of the cost low, but you also get very high quality for that. Typically, I think, you know, if you pay a, a low price, you expect that the the product quality also isn't as good. But I, I think that's the inverse where the, the quality is actually really strong. And I, I think that's developed kind of a very loyal following for this company. We are talking with Kevin Stratford and I want to hear more of your story, Kevin. So we're going to do that right after the break. You're listening to GeekWire. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. 
Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. My colleague John Cook is off this week. He's heads down preparing for the GeekWire Summit. Just a reminder, that's coming up on October 4th and 5th. You can get your tickets at geekwire.com slash summit to attend virtually or in person. Our guest this week is Kevin Stratvert, and you can find him online at kevinstratvert.com, right, Kevin? That's right, yeah. I was going to say, your, uh, your summit is just in time for the uh, Windows 11 release on uh, October 5th. It's funny. I was thinking about buying a Microsoft laptop studio, at least to have it there at the summit. <laughs> it's weird that the release time on that, I'm digressing here, but the release time is listed as 9 p.m. on October 4th. And I'm thinking like, when did hardware release dates start getting down to that hour? <laughs> it's, it's really odd. But I think if I pre-order now, I might get it on October 5th and perhaps be able to take it down and uh, have fun uh, at the summit, checking it out with folks. Oh, that would be neat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kevin, I am fascinated by your story. I think there's some really great examples out there in the whole creator economy of people being able to leverage their expertise to develop followings by delivering value through offering up content online. And, and I think yours is one of the best. Can you tell us the story of, of how you first came to Microsoft and then second ended up leaving to start your own thing? Yeah, so I, I joined Microsoft directly out of college and uh, that was the only company I had been at. And you know, I was on several different teams while I was at the company. Um, at, at the very end of my time at Microsoft, I was working as a program manager. And that's where you, you own an area of the business and, and you're on point to figure out, you know, what do customers want? What should we build into the product? You know, how is what we're building performing? Is it satisfying customer needs? And, and so in a sense, you're, you're almost like a, a business owner, like a CEO of your business. Uh, one thing that always surprised me while working at Microsoft is we'd have a lot of customers reach out and say, hey, it'd be great if you had this feature. Can you build this feature? You know, I want the product to do this. Uh, can you make it do that? Um, but then, you know, we would take these features down and then we would look at the product and it's like, wow, the product actually already does this. Uh, and so you have all these people requesting features for things that already exist. So a lot of it is not, you know, hey, the the software should support something or we should build something new. A lot of it is just uh, trying to educate or almost evangelize the value that you already get from the software that exists. Uh, and, and just kind of an example, one of my kind of big first, I guess, hit videos I was working on the office.com team and on office.com, if I, I'm sure many people still aren't aware, uh, but you can use word, Excel, PowerPoint on the web uh, for free online. And, and so you had all these people always asking, Hey, how can I get office for free? I don't want to pay for it. How can I use it? And, you know, I, I think on, on the one hand too, Microsoft probably wasn't publicizing it, you know, that much since, <laughs> you know, it, it, in a sense it could cannibalize your, your paid product. Uh, but I, I created a video on, Hey, how you can get word, Excel, PowerPoint for free. And at the time on YouTube, it was mostly, hey, how can you, you know, crack office or how can you get an illegal copy? And, and so it was kind of more sketchy in terms of the content you had. But then this was a legit video on, on like a, a legal avenue for getting uh, Microsoft Office. Uh, and it, it just blew up where people said, oh, thanks. You know, I was trying to get my essay done and, and now I could use Word at home because of your video. But then people would ask, hey, you know, hey, what about this? Or can you show me that? Uh, and so, you know, more and more ideas came in just from the comments and from suggestions from people. 
And that started building my backlog of videos. And so then I pulled together another video and then that resonated and people said, hey, well, can you show me this or show me that? Uh, and it, it really just started uh, just from all the user feedback just started growing. And uh, at a certain point, like I, I remember I was, you know, I was working at Microsoft and I was getting 5,000 views a day. And I was like, wow, that's incredible that 5,000 people would watch uh, you know, my videos. And then uh, what happened is the, so the pandemic hit and all of a sudden you have, you know, hundred, you know, millions of people now, you know, they, they go from working in the office or going to school to learn to now all of a sudden having to do all of that at home. Uh, and I, I think the need for technology was massive where it's like, wow, I still need to be able to conduct meetings. And, and so I need some solution that allows me to do that. Or I, you know, a teacher, I still need to be able to teach my class. How do I do that? And so the need for kind of assistance with technology just skyrocketed. And, and I think like at the same time too, as soon as the pandemic hit, I, I remember looking at my metrics and, you know, the views just, you know, every day would beat the previous day and it would just keep going up and up and up and the watch time would go up and up and up. Um, and I, I think, uh, yeah, it just started growing and people said, wow, how do you do this? Or like, I, I remember one question was, well, you know, I'm a teacher, how do I take attendance in teams? So I know which students are attending my class. Uh, and so my backlog of videos just kept growing and growing and growing as people asked questions. And then I would make videos on those and those would do well. I, I think the best way to describe it is it was, it was almost like a little snowball where I started rolling a snowball and then it just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, and I think now, uh, like I, I mentioned 5,000 views a day. Now it's like, you know, it's getting close to like 260, 270,000 views on a daily basis. And, and like, you think of that, like the, the city, like I always think of the city of Seattle, it's like 600,000 people, but it's almost like half the city of Seattle tunes in every day to watch my videos, uh, which just kind of blows my mind. It's not just in the U S I, I think my audience is like, you know, 22% U S and then I have, you know, lots of my audience in India in the Philippines in Malaysia. And I think what's been most satisfying is I've had so many people come back now and say, you know, we've had this pandemic and I didn't know how I was going to conduct my business or I didn't know how I would teach my students. But because of your videos, um, I was able to figure out how to use technology and I was able to, you know, teach my class or, you know, I was able to, you know, close some business deals because I had the, I, I had the right skills and tools to be able to do it. Um, and so that's, what's been kind of most satisfying for me, just seeing that, you know, this has been my contribution during, you know, this terrible pandemic to be able to help people figure out how to use their technology. I also do want to mention, just as an example of what you're talking about, I have been delving into water issues in California for reasons that I don't need to go into, but I downloaded this giant database of wells and well completion reports from the State Department of Water Resources. And I tried Tableau, I tried all sorts of different things to make a map out of it. And then I watched your video on how to turn data into an interactive map in Excel. And it's like, the stuff is in the software already <laughs> and you just need to know how to do it. And it's way easier in this app that's made more for a general audience than for a you know specific enterprise vertical, like some high-end Power BI or Tableau data visualization software. So I, I don't know. I, I just think that there's a ton of power and value in what you're doing. And, and I do agree with you that it's a real public service. Mm -hmm. No, I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, it, it's funny. I, I joke with my my wife about this, but I, I left Microsoft I, back. Uh, I guess it was uh, July of 2020. Uh, but my my wife still jokes that like you haven't actually left Microsoft because here you still <laughs> you produce so many videos on Microsoft. It's like in a sense you're still working there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at some point, are they going to acquire you, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> How would that work exactly? I don't know. Maybe they would just be an aqua hire, I guess. But uh, it sounds like you're doing well enough. You don't even don't even have to think about that. 
<laughs> That's right. I will link to your site for folks out there. It's Kevin, S-T-R-A-T-V-E-R-T.com. You can find Kevin Stratbert's videos there. You can also subscribe to his YouTube channel on YouTube. Kevin, thank you so much. This was awesome. I really appreciate all your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Todd. Uh, great chatting with you. Thanks everyone out there for listening to GeekWire. To see all of our coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. Please take a moment as well to subscribe, rate, and review the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. We will be back next week with a new episode of the podcast. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. Thanks for listening, everybody.